Amen. Hebrews chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. We already covered verses 1 through 3 last week, but we'll read it again for context. Hebrews 7, 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils, and those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, inasmuch as it was not without an oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more, also, Jesus has become the guarantee 
of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since always, excuse me, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Amen. Now, we're not going to explain all of that this morning, but I did want you to at least have a sense of context. My hope today is to take you from verse 4 to verse 10, and then in the next week or two to finish out this chapter for us. The one thing I want you to come away with this morning and for the next couple of weeks, really to simplify this as much as I can, especially for you young children, you teenagers, I want you to know what is the theme here of this chapter. You might say it's even the theme of the entirety of the book of Hebrews, and it is this. I think the argument that is being made overall in this chapter here is that Jesus Christ is supreme, and therefore we should put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, this chapter is an argument for the supremacy of Jesus Christ as a priest over the priesthood of the Levites that these people, these Hebraic Christian Jews would have known probably from the time uh, that they were born. Remember, we're writing to a first-generation church audience where there are a lot of Jews ethnically mixed in with the Gentiles in this first-century church. Now, the author of Hebrews here may even be writing entirely to Jewish congregations in this letter. Uh, We don't know exactly for sure, but we do know this, that there seems to be a tendency. you, You get the sense as you read through the book of Hebrews that the great concern of the author of Hebrews, whoever that author or apostle might be. Some people think it's Paul. Some people think it's somebody else. I tend to think it's probably somebody else. I, I can give you those arguments maybe at the door sometime why it is. I think, I think Paul was very direct, <clears throat> and I think Paul also, I don't think was one to say it is written somewhere. <laughs> I think Paul knew exactly, you know, where it was uh, when he was referring to things in the Old Testament there. But that aside, the the author here, um, I think, is his overriding concern is that there is within this group of Hebraic Christians um, some kind of temptation for them to move away from Christ and maybe even to drift back into just plain old Judaism. 
Uh, again, we don't know with absolute certainty. And as I've said in the past, uh, we want to be pastorally sympathetic. They may have been enduring a lot of pressures that we don't know about that would have tempted them to go back and to leave. Now, there may be something else in view, and here's my suspicion, if you just want to know, as I go through Hebrews chapter 7, I myself have wondered if there is not something within these Hebraic Christians that there's an unwillingness maybe to enter into the humiliation of the Lord in this sense that when, when they were Jews and they were making their thrice annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple, you remember what the apostles or what the disciples of Jesus said when they were at the temple? Do you remember how they said to Jesus, Lord, look how magnificent this place is. Look how magnificent these, this building is. How magnificent this city is. You remember how Jesus, you know, prophesies that not a single stone would be left on another. But here's the point I really want us to see is there, there was something aesthetically attractive about Judaic worship with all its pageantry and majesty and symbolism. There was a glory to it. It was a glory, though, that was outward. It was a magnificence as you looked at the high priest in, decked out in his turban and in his gold and in his purple and scarlet material. There was something you could look at. There was something you could see at the altar. There was something you could smell as the burnt offering was, was wafting up in, into the air filling the place with a fragrance. You could smell maybe even the incense that was being offered inside the temple, even as you stood out in the courtyard, offering up prayers. But now what do we have? We have something far less grand in its outwardness, in its appearance. We come here in a very simple little building, don't we? We sit in simple little pews. We... Uh, have very simple ordinances, a little reading from a book, a little preaching from the book, a little bread, a little wine, another song, and we go home. Nothing too fancy, nothing too ornate. And there might have been, maybe, a tendency to say, you know, is this really better? than what we had formerly. And I think even though you and I may struggle a little bit as we read through the details of the argument of the author of Hebrews concerning Melchizedek, and we may get, uh, there may be the temptation to get lost among the trees um, in the details of this argument here. I don't want you to lose sight that I think that there is a relevancy to what we are studying in this chapter today because there will always be a temptation for us to hearken to a suggestion that we are missing something. We Presbyterians, we Protestants 
are missing out because we do not have the elaborateness. We do not have the pageantry. And there may be a, a, a thinking that we therefore are missing out. And what I want you to see is that the argument of this chapter is to show these Jewish Christians, they are missing out on nothing. That for all the ornateness and pageantry and outward splendor of the building and of the high priests and of the sacrificial system and of all that was going on, there in Jerusalem at the temple, they have something exceedingly far beyond by comparison. The temple, as we have said many times, was but the training wheels. That There was a reason they needed to see it and smell it so vividly. It was because they were infantile. There's a reason we put pictures in children's books. It's because they are not ready for just the text. And there was a reason that God gave all this outward symbolism and animal sacrifices and why the laws are so detailed as to what the priests should do and how they should do it and what they should wear and when they should do it. Because all of these symbols and all of these rules and all of these Levitical laws were to teach juvenile believers who are living in the days of shadows and types that Jesus Christ would fulfill all this and supersede it all. Now what I want to do this morning is show us in four, four parts here the supremacy of Jesus as a priest from verses 4 through 11. The supremacy of Jesus as a priest in verses 4 through 11. Number one from verses 4 and 5 we are going to see that Jesus Christ, essentially, Christ received tithes from the Levites. That is, you think the Levites are better than the priesthood you have now in the church? No, the Levites were inferior, and it is demonstrated by the fact that they essentially pay tithes to Christ. That's point number one. Christ is greater than the Levites. Verses four and five. Number two. From verse 6, Christ, as we saw last week, is without genealogy. And there is a superiority to that over the Levites. Number 3, verse 7, number 3, Christ is the one who blesses the Levites. It is not the Levites who offer a blessing to Christ. And thereby, Christ shows himself to be superior to the Levites. And then finally, number four, in verse 11, we see that Christ brings about a perfection that the Levites could never bring about with the law. Christ brings about a perfection in holiness that the Levites could never bring about. So the argument here to the original audience is do not leave Jesus Christ because Christ, though the, 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 the ornateness has fallen off, there is a greater simplicity, 
to the worship. We worship God in spirit and in truth. It doesn't matter whether it's on this mountain or that mountain. As Jesus says in John chapter 4, it doesn't, we don't have to get involved in the arguments with the Samaritans as to where to worship and, and how we are supposed to do this now. Because we have Christ, we have everything that we need. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And it is supposed to be less elaborate. It is supposed to be more simple. But that does not mean that you are getting less. Actually, in the spirit of Christ, you are getting far more than the Old Testament believer received. And that we have privileges of which they longed for. That is, the most godly and eminent of Old Testament saints longed for the days of Christ. Abraham, and these Levites would have said, we're children of Abraham. Jesus makes the point, Abraham longed for the day of Christ. He wished he could have had more of Christ. And, the, and I think the lesson for us in the church is not to be drawn away from the simplicity and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in our faith and worship. That Christ must always be central in our heart and, and in our mind. So let's look at these four points here. Look with me at verse 4 and 5 as we see that Christ received tithes from the Levites, and thereby Christ is greater than the Levites. Look at verse 4 with me. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now who is this great man that is spoken of in verse 4? You remember, boys and girls, we said who that was last week. It is the man mentioned in verse 1. And that man is Melchizedek. You remember in Genesis, Moses introduces us to this mysterious historical figure who appears almost, if you will, out of nowhere after the battle of the slaughter of the kings. Remember, Lot is taken captive and Abraham builds up his army and goes and rescues Lot. He destroys these kings and he brings back their spoil and brings them back. And as he's making his way, I think probably past Jerusalem, I think that's what King of Salem is referring to here. Melchizedek, I believe, for those of you visiting, is a real historic figure uh, that is being referenced here. And that uh, Melchizedek goes out to meet Abraham as he is returning from this great and terrible battle. Abraham paves, pays a tithe or a tenth to Melchizedek. Look at verse 4. How this man, great this man, that is Melchizedek, was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now why does, why does the author of Hebrews call Abraham the patriarch? He calls him the, Abraham the patriarch because he is the father of Israel, right? Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to, to the 12 tribes of Israel, so uh, of which Levi would be one of them. So Abraham is the great-grandfather of the tribe of the Levites. And so, notice here, it is Abraham who gives of a tenth 
here to Melchizedek. Now, the point is this. Melchizedek, in this chapter, represents the Christ. He is a type of Christ. We're going to see this next week because we're going to study Psalm 110. Now, I want you to notice this. Every Levite who read his Bible, at one point, at least from the time of David on, would have read about what? They would have read about this figure, Melchizedek, in Psalm 110, that there was a greater priesthood coming. And the point of the author of Hebrews is this, that Abraham, who thus is representing in his lineage the tribe of Levi, is giving a tie to Melchizedek, to the Christ figure. The idea here is that the Levites must give a tithe to Christ. Melchizedek is greater than the tribe of Levi because he is representative of Christ and Abraham is a representative of the Levites. And so notice here, they are, they are telling these Christians, these Judaic Christians, Hebraic Christians, don't go back and submit yourself to the tribe of Levi as your priesthood. You have Christ. You have the greater priesthood in Jesus Christ. Don't leave Christ for the sake of the tribe of Levi because the Levites paid tithes to Christ. The Levites honored Christ. The Levites are pointing us to Jesus. And so we should look to the Lord Jesus ourselves. Look at verse 5. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their brethren. So notice here, it doesn't matter if you were a Jewish Christian, doesn't matter what tribe you came from. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. What did the tribe of Benjamin do? The tribe of Benjamin would pay a tithe to the Levites. <clears throat> they, that all the people of God were always paying a tithe to the Levites. It didn't matter what tribe you came from. And this was according to the law of God. They are all, so that no, you can't just say, well, I'm not a Levite and therefore this doesn't apply to me. No, no, verse 5 is making it clear. Doesn't matter what tribe you came from, you paid tithes for the ministry of the Levites. And therefore, the, you were represented by Abraham in the day, and Abraham paid a tithe to Christ. So the argument for us, I think, is, is this congregation today. Obviously, I don't suspect that many of you are in danger of drifting away into Judaism, okay? Uh, but, you know, history uh, may not repeat, but it does echo. And so the, I think the lesson for us is if we see something that is causing us to move our heart and our tithes, away from Christ. Because, you know, where your tithe is, there also is your heart, right? Uh, where your treasure is, there also is your heart, says Jesus. We need to watch anything that would move us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it doesn't, you know, in this case, it was very particular, but if I can apply it to our day, that uh, anything 
which would set itself up. You know, there, there's always something within us um, that, that is tempted to think I need more than, than what I've got in Christ. You remember, um, I think it was King Ahaz, you remember how he saw the Assyrian um, sacrificial system and he got somebody, he said, make a copy of that and I want you to bring it back and set it up in the temple. What was, what was he doing there? He's essentially, he's taking something that was foreign to the worship of God and he's adding it to the worship of God. And there's, there is, I think, something within our rebellious self that always needs to be mortified, that wants to add something to the faith and the worship of Christ. And we have to remember the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the loveliness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the, um, the immaculate nature of Christ, that Christ is without sin, that Christ um, is the eternal Son of God in the flesh. There is no one better, no one greater uh, to serve than, than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must watch anything that would move our affections away from the Lord. This was the problem with the church at Ephesus in the book of Revelation. What happened? It, it, that they needed to be warned. They had lost their first love. They began to drift away it, within one generation. Um, depending on your view, when the book of Revelation was written, you know, late 60s, early 90s, um, somewhere at least within a, a handful of years to maybe 30 years at most, there had been a drift uh, in their affection. We have, to, we have that same tendency in Christ as sinners, and we need to be aware of that. So Christ is... Uh, Supreme over the Levites in that Christ received tithes. That's point number one. Number two, look at verse six. Christ is without genealogy. I won't spend too much time on this because we touched on it last week. But here you'll notice, again, um, making reference to Melchizedek. Uh, you see in verse three, without father, without mother, without genealogy. Now, as I said... Um, some people feel that those verses, verse 3 and 6, are so strong that they believe that Christ, um, it, that, well, excuse me, Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, they believe, and, and sometimes, in fairness, uh, Christ, I think, did make appearances in the Old Testament, uh, pre-incarnate. So I, I do think, for example, the, the captain of the host who appears before Joshua and Joshua reverences him and worships him, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. However, I think maybe I'm persuaded by John Owen, and maybe you might say, well, you're persuaded too much by John Owen, Pastor. But I'm persuaded that, that what we have here, Melchizedek was a historical figure. And when it says without father, without mother, without genealogy, meaning that Moses never recorded for us any of that. That normally when historic figures, particularly people who love the Lord, are mentioned in the Old Testament, he was so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. And, and yet we don't get that. Melchizedek just, we don't know where, who, who you, who's your kin, you know, like a good southerner, you know. Who are you? 
Who are you, where are you from? Where do you go to church? You know, what do you do? You know, those, those, those questions that we, we always ask. Um, and, and, you know, with Melchizedek, it's a bit mysterious. He just suddenly shows up and, and uh, he's got bread and wine and he blesses Abraham and Abraham gives him a tithe. But the author of Hebrews, I think, is, however, pointing us uh, to the fact that if, if Melchizedek is a genuine uh, historic figure, not a pre-incarnate picture of a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ, that he is pointing us to Christ, who is the eternal Son of God, who would not have, as God, had any genealogy. Uh, in the way that a man would. Now, Jesus, obviously, in his human nature, had a genealogy. So I think here that the point is this, that Christ uh, is superior uh, to the Levites in that he, Melchizedek, reflected something of Christ's divinity and, and that Christ, as God and man, is superior to those who are just men. And therefore, why would you go back? Why would you leave a priest who is both God and man in one person for a priesthood that is but men? Why would you leave the eternal Son of God who has been raised bodily from the dead to never die again for a priesthood that keeps dying one after another, after another, after another? Each time the high priest in the Old Covenant died... He, he was gone. He had to be replaced by another. But in Jesus Christ, you have a high priest who died and was raised from the dead to live forever and is sitting at the right hand of God. And so the, the, the author here is pressing home the vast uh, supremacy of the Lord over and against the typological priesthood of the Old Covenant. Don't move away from the simplicity of Presbyterian worship for things that will cause you to lose Christ, where Christ is being dimmed instead of exalted. Just because we do it simply uh, does not mean we are doing it less. Uh, We are offering Jesus Christ, I would suggest, more clearly in the preaching and, and more clearly in the simplicity of the Lord's table and in baptism than in other denominations that would offer a, a complex form of liturgy. We are preaching Christ and Him, Christ, Christ and Him crucified, I think, more effectively. You know, the argument prior to the Reformation was against the reformers, is if you don't allow icons, you Protestants, if you don't have pictures and statues all over the place, how are the ignorant people going to learn anything? And you know, John Calvin had a very simple answer to that. He said the people wouldn't be ignorant if the priests would preach Christ. You wouldn't need the pictures and the statues and the icons. If the minister would do his job, if the minister would unpack the scriptures and preach the word of God like he should be. You wouldn't need all of this iconography all over the place. There is a supremacy to preaching Christ as Christ is ordained in the word and in the sacrament. 
Now, I got to keep moving here. Number three, we see thirdly the supremacy of Christ also in verse seven. In verse seven, in the fact that it is Melchizedek who offers a blessing uh, to Abraham. But look at verse seven. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, let me say this. There, there are different forms of blessing, okay? There are different forms of blessing. One commentator noted that there are four types of blessing. Sometimes a worshiper, the lesser, can bless the greater. Sometimes you'll see the psalmist, for example, say, you know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his name. All right, now clearly that is the worshiper, the lesser, praising or offering a blessing of worship to the greater, okay? But we're not talking about that kind of blessing here. We are talking about the blessing whereby there is grace imparted to the recipient through the blessing. For example, you see in the Old Testament how Jacob blessed his children as he was dying. What was he doing? He was imparting a, a, the favor of God upon the different tribes of Israel. Here, you have something similar. You have Melchizedek the priest, and he is blessing Abraham, the father of the Levites, the father of all the tribes of Israel. And the argument here is this, that, Mel, that Melchizedek who is the greater, is blessing Abraham, and Abraham is the father of the Levites. Again, the argument is, don't leave the greater for the lesser. Abraham was the, was the lesser in this case. He was the recipient of the blessing. God intended to bless Abraham. He did it through this figure, Melchizedek, in the text. So that Abraham is the worshiper of God. He brings the tithes. He brings the offering of all the spoils, the tenth of the spoils to, to God. He dedicates them uh, to God through Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, in turn, brings the blessing, bread and wine and a benediction. And that is, is a picture of, of simple worship, isn't it? Isn't that essentially what we do? We gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest. And we invoke the name of the Father because of the merits of Jesus Christ, our high priest. We come boldly into the throne of grace as children unto a father. Because Jesus, we saw last chapter, is our anchor into the inside of the veil. Jesus Christ, our high priest, has presented himself to the Father with a, as a better sacrifice, with better blood, with a better covenant, with better promises. And we come through this high priest, Jesus Christ. And what do we do? We, we worship him. We praise him. And what does God do? He blesses us. He blesses us in the word. He blesses us with bread. He blesses us with wine. He blesses us. And we grow in grace through that blessing of God. You know, the only way the world will ever be changed as God intends to do so according to his wisdom is through the church. The only way idolatry in, in foreign nations comes down is through the worship of God. It's through the, 
It's through the, the simple worship of God that we tear down the idols. God is at work. And it doesn't outwardly look like much, does it? I've said this several times from this pulpit that CNN will probably never be here. And yet it is one of the most significant things that is going on in the world right now. That people are gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the high priest, they are received by the Father and the Father brings blessing on them and changes them. And he adds to his number. He takes people who are, who are outside the covenant and he brings them in and he makes them children by the Spirit of God. He causes them to be born again and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And then number four, number four, the supremacy of Christ as our high priest is seen. I'll take it from verse 11 here. That Jesus Christ brings about a perfection that the, the Levites could never bring about. Look at verse 11 here. <clears throat> verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. Let's just stop there for a second. Let's just look at that again here. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. That perfection here, I take to be the ultimate sanctification and glorification of the, God, of the people of God. That is, it was always to be through the Lord Jesus Christ here. Um, you know, Paul speaks in these similar terms here. You know, he says, not that I have truly been perfected, but uh, in Christ, we have what the law could never do, okay? The, the law, when, when the sinner meets the law, the law is weak. The law cannot change your life. The law doesn't have the power to regenerate. The law does not, in that sense, have the power to bring about new life and perfect you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. But weak as the law was, Christ, who was born under that law, has that power. And that's the point that, that, that Christ, our priest, um, is able to do what the Levites could never do for us. Now, I'm not suggesting that the people in the Old Covenant were not saved. The people of God who submitted to the, to the Levitical priesthood in their day, yes, God used that as bringing them to Christ. But the, 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 the efficacy of the Levitical priesthood is only realized in Christ. And the author of Hebrews is saying here, look, if, if, if this perfection and if this glorification could, could come about through the Levites, then there was no need to send Jesus. God would have done it through the Levitical priest. But the Levitical priesthood could never do it. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood um, was so far from being perfect. You had, the Levitical priesthood is full of sinners. The Levitical priesthood is full of men who are going to die. The Levitical priesthood is, is uh, full of people offering very imperfect sacrifices, animals, blood of bulls, goats, calves. Everything is inferior about this system. And, and so there was no way that a future sanctification and glorification of the whole church of God was ever going to come about by the priesthood of the Levites. So if the perfection was through the Levitical priests, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise? And, and the argument here is what? There needed to be another priesthood, didn't there? 
And God had always intended another priesthood to arise. You know, this is why I really find the dispensational system really goofy. The idea that, that when the new heavens and, you know, that, well, let me say this, when the millennium comes, we're going to rebuild the temple and we're going to go back to the Levitical system of offering animals on an altar in, in some kind of memorial to what Jesus did? No! That's exactly what the author of Hebrews here is saying, don't do. This, this idea that we're going we're gonna to set up a, a, a physical temple again in Jerusalem and we're going to have sinners offering animal sacrifices again? That's an improvement? No, it's going backwards. That system was done away with intentionally by God. We have a priest who is of the order of Melchizedek. And even, as I said earlier, the Levites knew this from Psalm 110. It says here in verse 11, not be, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. A change had to come about. There had to be a change in the priesthood. There had to be a change in the system. And that change came with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say this for the young people here. When you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have everything you need. You have your complete priesthood, your complete king. You have your complete prophet. You have everything that you need in one person who is both God and man. And you have to only receive him by faith. That's the point of the gospel. The gospel is this good news. It's a proclamation that God has come into the world in his son to save us and to deliver us from our sins in a way that the, the old economy could never do, in the in way that God never intended the old economy to do. The, 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 as I said, they were training wheels. The, the temple was a training wheel. The priesthood of the Levites was training wheels. They were always supposed to come off at some point. At some point, you don't want your 16-year-old riding a bicycle with training wheels on it. That looks funny. And we in the Lord, we are supposed to grow up. We are supposed to be in, uh, moving towards maturity in Christ. Not drifting back into immaturity. Don't drift back, congregation. Keep pressing forward, forgetting what lies behind. Press on for the prize that lies ahead.